Jordan, hello. How's uh, it going? Ho, ho, ho. I'm in the holiday spirit. Ho- holiday Jorby. They call yeah. it. Holiday Jorby. Holiday Jorby. It's nice around the office right now. We got the little decorations. I like the little the little treat section that got added to the cafeteria. Got a little, some cookies down there. You know, the, the apple cider. The holiday spirit is uh, is thriving right now in the insurgents' headquarters, and I'm I'm loving it, frankly. Absolutely the gingerbread, the gingerbread cans are a really nice touch. Yeah, I do like that. Um, and you know what? Good. I like. I, it does seem like morale has tanked a bit, but I do appreciate that we we're making all of the paid interns dress as elves uh, for the whole. They month. like it, you know. I think deep down they do. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, who doesn't like that? It's fun. It's festive. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're joking around. It's like, oh, this is degrading, quote unquote. I'm humiliated. Yeah. You know, I went to these, Cornell, these, whatever it is. Like These costumes haven't been washed in months. <laughs> like, I don't. That's 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 a YP, not an MP. Yeah. Thank you. Um You'd think that they would be just grateful to be in this kind of situation, but and this is the younger generation for you. You know, they're all on TikTok. I don't got these, yeah, these devious Chinese algorithms uh, convincing them that it's bad to be uh, ritualistically humiliated at their their workplace. Look, we don't see eye to eye with uh, Alyssa Slotkin much, but I do think she's right that China has been pushing the war on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I know. We got to watch out for this. This is how they get you. <laughs> yeah it's scary stuff (laughs) no uh yeah no it's 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 nice this season it's uh it kind of really snuck up on me like i just looked at the i realized it oh fuck it's december 20th today i can't even believe this um i'm just tired and stressed out it's my you know it's my son's birthday as well at the same time so it's his birthday on friday and it's christmas and there's so many things to organize and i gotta spend so much money on presents like we were saying in the, we spoke with Ryan Grimm today and we were saying before we turned on the mics, like it was great when you're a kid and you're getting all the stuff, but when you're an adult and you have to do all the organizing and driving around and buying stuff, it's kind of less cool actually. But, yeah. You know, whatever. Well, it's fine. It's nice. I did think it was, you know, dude, Christmas birthdays are tough, but I really did appreciate that your son said he wanted everyone to subscribe to our podcast for his birthday. I think that was yeah. a really good gift idea. Well, I mean, I'm able because of the people that support the show, I'm able to afford a few presents for my beautiful son. And you know, if you're listening to this and you're not a subscriber, if you're comfortable with the you fact that you're him? basically yeah. taking away presents from a small child, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. It's fine with me, I guess. But if whatever helps you sleep at night, whatever it is, but you know that's, we'll, we'll uh, see if this pitch works yeah exactly it's <laughs> just throw just the pure guilt trip that's uh that's one of the one of the many uh-huh. ways you can try and try and get that going are well, you in a good you, you, i mean i remember last year you talked about being kind of a, a scrooge type are you coming around this no, year i still or? am okay no no absolutely not okay. uh i just i have always never really understood the appeal of christmas Beyond like, okay, it's time you get off work and you spend some time with family. You could decompress. That's cool. Um, on Christmas Day, there's a lot of marquee matchups in the NBA. That's always, that's fun. Um, but just, I just can't stand the the commercialism aspect of it. I don't think I'm novel or edgy in that. I just like, at a basic level, I just hate it. I hate that it is a way for all of these companies to potentially hit their end of year goals or drive up profits and you're there's just like expectation for people to spend as much money as possible and i think people who are working class people who are already struggling are seeing you know their kids don't have as good of an experience right like there's just like a stigma if you're a kid in a poor working class home at Christmas because you didn't get like the new video game console or a bunch of stuff and then you like have wealthier classmates or people that you know who are just getting like bombarded with shit. It's like, it just feels very shitty because like Christmas for so many people is just a fucking pissing contest. And you're just like, 
I don't know, just if you want to enjoy the season with your family, have some treats, you know, hang out, get cozy. Fine. That's fine. But like Christmas is just like a commercialized bonanza. And again, I'm not trying to be like edgy or unique in that. I know it's not a uncommon take, but that is, I'm just, I'm in that camp. That's why I don't like it. Yeah. The, the aggressively like pro Christmas people, it's like, that's sickening. Let's, yeah. let's shut it down a little bit. Let's, let's pump the brakes on this. Yeah. Um, it is the end of the year though. Anything, any highlights of the year that you're thinking about? It's like, it's, I guess this, I don't, I think we're going to do one more. We will do at least two episode. more. Okay. Yeah. So just forget <laughs> that then whenever we can. Okay. Wait I will, I will make a list. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Uh, anyway, it's late. I'm tired, man. I'm really yeah. tired. I'm podcasting at like midnight here. This is my dedication <laughs> to the craft. Yeah, here. yeah. And if you don't want Rob's son to have a bad birthday <laughs> and or Christmas, you can subscribe to the show at insurgentspod.com for just five bucks a month. You help bring gifts to young Canadian boys. Yeah. Uh, the, but, the, the people that need that need your care this time, this time the most. <laughs> uh, our last episode with Ed Zitron, where we talked about the Obama produced Leave the World Behind film on netflix now i had a blast talking about that just heinous awful terrible movie it was really good but you get access to that and every other premium episode we've done you get an additional episode every week again it's just five bucks a month and you help keep the show going we, re- we really cannot thank you enough if you head on over to insurgencepod.com you can become a subscriber and help keep the show going yeah, and talking about things that we're thankful about this time of year. I'm thankful for our wonderful listeners, the wonderful community that is formed around the show. The last episode was fun. I'm particularly a fan of the the genre of insurgents episode when we just take a guest and just get them really mad about something. Yeah. And then just turn on a microphone and, and capture that. That's <laughs> that's always enjoyable. And Ed was really it was, he was genuinely upset about this film and it was it was very funny. The Dave Anthony one was also really good. Like that was one where we just knew we have to get him mad. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That was really fun. Yeah. I I enjoyed it. But yeah, so that's, that's how you get access to all that uh, really uh, terrific bonus content that we, that we put out this year. We got a great episode coming up with Ryan Grimm. He was just talking about his new book, uh, The Squad. That was really great uh, too, to have him back on the show. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I hit him up. Because I'm I'm listening to this book, I'm almost done. It's really really good. I I, I really like it. Um, and I just said, look, look. I know you were just on, but we'd love to do an episode about the book. Um, happy for him that it's published. Happy for him that it's getting good reviews and selling well, seemingly. Uh, but yeah, if you're looking for a last minute gift for a progressive or a lefty in your life, it is a good kind of I wouldn't say oral history. It's not that thorough, but it takes you through the last several years of the progressive movement. Uh, in an electoral context. Uh, it's a fun read. I, I would re- highly recommend it. It's called The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution. It's available everywhere now. You want to get into our conversation with Ryan? Let's get into that. It was really good stuff. And our talk with The Intercept's Ryan Grimm is going to be coming up uh, right after this. so happy you're you're joining us again and you requested that we open this this conversation with a poetry reading is that right you have a piece selected uh yes i uh wanted to honor what's his name maxime uh i don't know if people have been following this a dude named maxime um had the balls uh to to slam the poetry not a poetry slam, but to criticize oh. the poetry of Rayfat Alarir, uh, the poet who was assassinated. I did see that. He's got recently. some bangers, this guy. Yeah. This guy called um, Rayfat's uh, words, I think, banal was the, was one of the words he used. Like, just, just dragging the guy's poetry. Uh, so, naturally, um, people have looked up his own verse. <laughs> and so... It it all is like this, but uh, let's let's begin with a little a little ditty uh, from Maxime. What is his last name? 
Oh, he said, he said, Alarir's work, tenderly keening at its best and banal and formulaic at its average, relies on strained cultural and historical transpositions. That's Maxime Schreyer and his assessment of Rayfat's work, the late Rayfat's work. <clears throat> Here is Maxime's poem called An Election Lament. <clears throat> the ancient senator from Vermont is so desperate to win, he opened a second front and joined Hezbollah and its kin. <laughs> the senior senator from Mass is also very keen to get the nomination, her morass, taxing the rich to please the rest. The valiant mayor of South Bend, Indiana's north, where hunters roam, is living like a Bedouin, campaigning all the way to Rome. That old Pennsylvania horse, Ukraine's friend, Ukraine's foe. His fist is strong, his voice is hoarse. He flies a secret UFO. And only Amy Klobuchar is ready to balkanize the world. Her bluntness and Midwestern charm are paid for with the farmer's woes. So how do we defeat Trump? How we his machinations stop? Oh, Michael Bloomberg. Lift your rump and drink democracy's last drop. This wow. is a little ode to Michael Bloomberg, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it. I mean, listen, the great the great poets, you know, it's not only pleasing to listen to and read, but it makes you feel something, you know? Uh, yes. There's a kind of catharsis. I, I absolutely <laughs> feel something from this poem. <laughs> I feel something. <laughs> yeah. <there's... laughs> this so this kid maxime apparently either has the worst friends on the planet who were like yeah dude that's good like you should definitely publish that uh or he has absolutely no friends like those are the only two options like nobody who is buddies with maxime should ever have allowed this poem or any of the others that people are finding and posting to have seen the light of day like they're they're deeply offensive like to the English language, to to the craft of poetry, uh, to can you, you believe that this is an adult who wrote this? It doesn't feel like it. It no, it, it's it reads like, like a seventh grade, yeah, yeah seventh grade English yeah. class assignment. <laughs> Write a poem about current events, and like this is what you get. I, I, I mean, mean, like how the whole, how the whole Bloomberg reveal. The whole Bloomberg reveal at the end really is yeah. like it's kind of like a nice twist. I got it. Yes. If it was being done for comedic purposes, I would probably yes. like it. But I think it's right. You have to be like, no, no, no. I'm uh, this guy's serious. Like this is not. <laughs> this is not. Like if this were parody, maybe it works. Yeah. Uh, I don't quite understand what he means by Bernie Sanders joining Hezbollah and its kin by not by not calling for a ceasefire. Like what? And like the abbreviation of mass. Anyway, uh, congratulations to uh, Maxime. Tremendous work. He really earned, you know, the ability to uh, criticize uh, the late uh, Rafit, uh, Rafat Alarir. Well, when, when Trump wins again, I, I expect him to be invited for the inauguration. As That's right. The there you go. <laughs> there is an opportunity coming up. That's right. I mean, Trump, <laughs> Trump should do his own poem, right? Like he oh, should absolutely. just read. He should just read. What was that verse he had yesterday about um, uh, the the, the Santa's campaign vi falling violently from the sky like a wounded bird? A wounded bird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tr Trump's like truth socials Same. are so much better than this guy's poetry. Yeah. Do you think that Trump workshops that stuff, or is that a first draft that we're getting? I really hope it's first draft. I want like the uh, the uncut stuff. I think that's where he's that's where he really shines. Do we think that's really him, or does he have a does he have a team of writers now that know the Trump voice and the Trump style? It's, the, it's AI, yeah. It's ChatGPT. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when Trump was elected, and there was that whole idea like this is going to be so this is terrible, obviously, but it's going to be so great for art and punk rock and satire and all this stuff. And it's like it really was not in retrospect because no, you can't I mean, satire it. No, but, that's true. But he yeah. is like he is actually capable of shame. Did you notice that he was bullied out of using the word sad? You notice that's no. gone from his repertoire? Oh, really? Which Why is that? which is sad. I think he was tired of getting made fun of for it. Yeah. Uh sad. 
sad. What's kind of a go-to? Yeah, what's kind of a go-to line now that I think of it? Okay. That's how he Bullying stops works. landing each time. Sad. I mean, but that shows how like his ability to just effortlessly influence culture like this. He gets sometimes he gets ones that really that cross all these different barriers and gets everyone on board. He's like, no, no, throw it back. I don't want it. And we're not doing it anymore. Let's watch. Like that's some people can write their whole lives without trying to reach people to that extent. But it's like Warren Zevon like, no. saying, "I'm not, I'm not playing Werewolves of London anymore." Yeah, it's uh, impressive in a way. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Trump, Ryan, we really wanted your thoughts on the news this week that Trump has been removed from the ballot in Colorado. Now, this was a huge win for a lot of liberals. I saw Democratic groups cheering this on. There's been a huge push across the broader uh, liberal and progressive organizational infrastructure for a year or two now around Trump accountability, getting him removed from from ballots because of his role in January 6th. And they finally got a win after months and months of losses or procedural slowdowns. Colorado removed him from the ballot yesterday. Granted, this could be appealed. Uh, This isn't the, you know, this isn't the end of it. But at first blush, what do you what do you make of this? Is this a good thing? Is is this something that liberals should be worried about going forward? What do you make of it? Yeah, and maybe people won't like this take, but I think there's two ways that you should that you should have handled or you should handle Trump after January sixth. I think one way is you drop the hammer. You do what um Cicilline, uh, uh Omar, a couple other I think Ted Lou. We're pushing like the night of January 6th and early January 7th, like Omar and also that Cicilline, they wrote like an they wrote an article of, of impeachment by hand. Like it was ready to go. It was an easy one to write. Like guy tried to overthrow the government and just you just vote like after you uh, gavel in that Biden has won the Electoral College, you just put impeachment on the floor right there. And let these Republicans step over the broken glass and the blood and vote on it. And Democrats, you know, it would have passed. Like it would have passed the House. Like Democrats controlled the chamber. It then goes immediately over to the Senate. If you remember, it was really Lindsey Graham getting heckled by January 6th rioters at the airport that changed his whole mind. Like the night of January 6th, he's like, I'm done with Trump. I've gone as far as I can. I said, you know, they told me there's 10,000 people that, you know, dead people that voted in Atlanta. I said, show me two. They couldn't, you know, he gave us great speech. Like he's like, I'm done with him. He was yelling at the sergeant at arms. Like you've got guns. Why don't you use them? He was there. What they let everybody leave Washington and go back into their districts and get berated by these same rioters. And they lost all the momentum. You, you, you impeach him like immediately. You might actually impeach him. Now he's impeached. Now you got Vice President Pence as President Pence for the last like two weeks. And you tell Pence, get, you know, impeach that attorney general, that weirdo acting attorney general who like tried to participate in the insurrection too. And, and you, and you prosecute Trump. And then when Biden comes in, that Biden's DOJ picks up the prosecution and he gets his, he gets his day before a jury. But at that point, you've really brought the hammer and it's and that to me is completely fair it, it, within a democratic system because we have rules here and you try to overthrow the government and you miss like you're going to jail you come, like everybody knows you come for the king and you miss you're in trouble it's not like you come for the king like uh oh, better luck next time maybe yeah. you'll get the king <laughs> We'll give you a mulligan on this one. Yeah, we'll give you a mulligan on coming for the king. And what we did, we're like, you know, we're like, you know what? Let us think about this. Yeah. And we sit there for like three years, and then come at him with uh, some paperwork stuff on Stormy Daniels payoffs, which everybody already knew about. It took three years to file that. Then some classified document stuff, and then Merrick Garland finally gets around to saying, uh, "I don't have the courage to like make this decision myself." I will pass it off to this special counsel. And then they finally get a bulldog, but the bulldog is like three years late. And so now they're trying to prosecute him at the height of a presidential campaign. Um, so therefore they have never convicted him. So in order to try to say 
that he is um, that he is disqualified just it feels cheap at this point. It's like I, I get it, like you didn't have to be convicted of being a Confederate, but it was obvious, like you put on a Confederate uniform. And yet, I think Biden made Biden's point to, that he made today was straight up correct. He's like, did did Trump like support an insurrection? Yeah, yeah, he did. But then, as he said, what you know, what the court will decide, we'll see. And he's basically signaling that the court's going to overturn this. So, to me, I think you either have to use raw power immediately and take him down as as a criminal, or you have to beat him politically at the ballot box. Like you can't wait four years until he's ten points up in the polls yeah. and then try to take him off the polls because too many societies. Because I think if you if you take him down then in a bipartisan way then he's gone. Like you've, you've worked that out kind of democratically because everybody's in agreement that he's done and he doesn't come back from that. But letting him come back and letting him get 50 plus percent of the country supporting him or whatever bizarre number he's got at this point and then pulling him off the board makes it so that the contradictions that are inside our society lose one of their vehicles for working themselves out peacefully and, and moves us closer to a banana republic violence situation. Like I've been reporting on Pakistan lately and the, the former prime minister Imran Khan is in jail right now. And it's hard for me to like press the state department be like, don't you think this is like you, like you stay, say you stand up for democracy in Pakistan. They're jailing the former prime minister at the height of an election on Trump's who's very up, popular you know, too. corruption charge. Who's extremely popular and very Trump like in the sense that he's yeah. like, pops off a lot and has some populist elements. Um, and like, it just undermines the ability to kind of call that out. Cause a lot of Democrats would be like, well, yeah, well, what, what are the details? Let me hear the case. We, we kind of would like to throw our former guy into jail too, in the middle of an election. So to me, I think you just got You either got to, you either got to do it head on and they didn't, um, or now you just have to beat him. And he's so beatable. Like you can beat him. Um, you think so? he's lost like three times in a row, four times if you count 2016. It's, I think it's, I would say it's harder to beat him when you've alienated a huge chunk of the constituency that you need to vote for you. And you've repeatedly uh, yeah. you know, gone against the things that especially the, the younger, more passionate, more progressive people want. And you're kind of subsidizing this kind of uh, mm -hmm. rampant over the top uh, ethnic cleansing and mass murder in, in Palestine right now, that that makes him a li little bit more uh, difficult, makes the whole equation Does. a little bit more difficult. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems like I was talking to a friend yesterday and it, it seems like the takeaway that we were both kind of finding ourselves continuing to, to reach was just that Democrat strategy going into this election is just hope that enough people are motivated by remembering how bad the Trump years were. And just if their messaging is all around, you know what this is like, you know how chaotic it is, you know how bad it is. Instead of here's all the good things that we did and we and we want to continue to work around. Maybe there will be some elements of that in debates, but it seems like their focus is just going to be Trump's a criminal. He's corrupt. He's a fraud. He's bad. And you already know what a Trump president presidency looks like and hope that is more effective. It's like a lesser of two evils approach, which is. A dangerous, dangerous equation. And if it's if it's lesser chaos, you're going to have people who, you know, just like does a president deserve all the credit for the, the way the economy goes or the stock market or whatever else? No, of course not. But like people link these things together. At the same time, people have a sense that of of the global chaos under Biden. Like we we're now like engaged in two two major wars which is, you know, kind of two more. And, you know, he, he got out of Afghanistan, deserves credit for that. Although people probably, uh, pretty forgotten about that by now, you know, with short, short memories and American voters, but, you know, these two wars get, and coming with this, you know, bring a sense of chaos that, uh, cuts against what Biden sold as his brand, which was like, it's time to get the adults back in the room. And you're you're not going to hear about me every day, because people were eventually like, "All right, enough." Like, do I need really need to hear about Trump like all day long, seven days a week? 
it was exhausting. I can't imagine what <laughs> being a reporter was like. <laughs> I'm so glad crazy. I don't work in media. <laughs> oh, oh, you kind of do. Yeah, a little bit, but I didn't as much back then, which was nice. Um, yeah, I, I just, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if, if that's going to work for them. Um, and now, well, I, I think the memory thing it is it is a factor like everyone in the moment always overhypes the impact that things have especially like a year or two out the impact that might have on the election i think that's just something right. that we all do too much i don't know if this is going to be as impactful uh, on 2024 in the general <laughs> as we might think it is now just because it's current but this immigration deal in exchange for funding for ukraine uh israel and taiwan just seems so ridiculous if you were to just go back to 2018 and try to tell me that this is what the democrats would be doing i just i don't know if i would believe you because it was just they were all seemingly unified actually we'll get into a little bit more about your book there were there were some outliers but for the most part that was the party position that all of these things that trump was doing on immigration are horrible they're inhumane and they're cruel we have to stop it and the base especially was mobilized but now it's we're just going to do the same things in exchange for funding for wars it's just right. it's well, the democrats have totally a, yeah abandoned yeah. who they were uh, like several decades ago it's, it's crazy a, it, it's it's kind of amazing to think that the republicans are the ones who are like all right we'll fund your war Right. If you if you give us the border crackdown and anti-immigration stuff, fine, fine, yeah. we'll fund the war against the Russians. Called making deals. <laughs> yes, we're we're willing to we're willing to compromise and do more war. Like this, <laughs> the Republican Party is this is this is who's walking you into this. It, it's really the, amazing too because Trump was just the other day gave these really abhorrent statements about immigration, kind of o- openly, kind of explicitly referencing this kind of like blood and soil, almost like mm-hmm. fascism, talking about you know immigrants poisoning the blood of America and stuff like that. And then what are Democrats supposed to say? They're, they say like, "Wow, that's really abhorrent." What he said, we can't believe that, even though we agree with like ninety percent right, of the right. Trump we're administration past, policies. Policy, but we don't like the what yeah, he said like that it. is insane. Like the idea that with all of the efforts that was being made to draw this real contrast, like on this specific uh, subject for four straight years. And then this is where they find themselves. Even Chuck Schumer was like, yeah, it was really terrible what he said, but there is a problem. And we do need to, of course, <laughs> have these draconian immigration policies, but we just don't want to say it like that though. Like it doesn't poison the blood, but it's not healthy for our blood. Yeah. Like that's their, but, that's their contrast. It's, it's, it's amazing. And we the all want Schumer healthy line. Blood. The Schumer line about not abandoning our principles on the border, I thought was so ridiculous. Like, oh, well, we're just going to we're going to do it. And I read that as like him trying to say, oh, we still care about immigrants, even though we're just going to implement the exact same things that we denounced two years yeah. ago. And uh, it it colors the scenes in the book in an interesting way, because a lot of the book is about the way that idealism clashes with like the the kind of realpolitik of Washington and these, you know, new, fresh freshman members of Congress continuously running up against the hypocrisy and the betrayals inherent in, in the democratic position. And, the, and they often were seeing that on, on immigration where it, they'd be like, wait a minute, we all have this, these signs in our front yard and on our refrigerator. And like, these are the things that we've all said. And they're slowly realizing like, oh, a lot of these people don't believe this stuff. Like, interest. Okay, all right. This play. I see. This is not on the up and up at all. Like, we're all not actually. We don't all have the same end goal and just different, like you know, tactics of getting there. Like, this is there's something much deeper um, going on here. Um. So yeah, it it's and now that's being. I, I've thought for more than a year now you, that the Democrats were sending real signals that like they would love it if Republicans would kind of force them to become hawkish on immigration and just not have to deal with this issue anymore. And Republicans on the other hand are like, they would, they don't want to force Democrats hand because they would much rather have um, chaos at the border that they can point to. 
and blame on and blame on Democrats than actually solve the problem because they're smart enough to know that they you know they they tell their uh, rube kind of voters that like oh they're getting five thousand dollars and immediately voting ten times for Democrats when they come across the border but Republicans know that's not true they're not voting period maybe maybe never but not for years and years and years in the future and so it's a political winner uh, for Republicans not for not for Democrats and re- Republicans aren't going to want to give that up. It's, it's a, it's, it's one of the like real incentive problems that we've got in our, in our politics that, that part that parties are oftentimes incentivized to keep problems festering rather than solve them. Well, and even when it comes to like the issue of immigration, this has been like a 10 year process of seeing Democrats try to like triangulate some, solution yeah. where you had Obama basically agreeing to like to really uh intensify this mass deportation machine to appease conservatives to show that he was serious about <clears throat> dealing with this kind of problem and enabling all these really draconian uh, uh organizations like ICE or whatever to engage in these mass deportations uh as long as we can now work together to protect these good immigrants who came here when they were children who've never done anything wrong uh they've never lived in the country their countries of origin and we you know this is what we're going to do this is making a deal in washington and we're going to do this the the really terrible thing in order to make this deal and then this deal never really comes together even though republicans kind of agree to like go along with this with this negotiation they completely just uh, all all the people that negotiated it all just vote no on it uh, leaving these people kind of in limbo. Then Trump comes in, cranks everything even further to the right and increases the cruelty even more on this already really cruel system, which you know Democrats campaign against. And now you have no, 10 years later, Biden doing the same kind of triangulation and now even throwing the, the dreamers and these immigrants that were supposed to be like the ideal kind of personification of the people that need to be protected. And they're getting thrown under the bus as well. So it's just been this 10-year process of just this already really cruel system being uh, made worse and worse and worse and just going further and further to the right. And Democrats have been there for many of those years trying to appear like they're kind of sensible or they're making deals, but really they're just like part of this, uh, of this really cruel machine that they've, that they've helped create. Yeah, that, you know, that's right. And uh, right. And, and in the two thousands, Rahm Emanuel was urging them to take a, a, an anti basically an anti-immigrant posture. Um, so, you know, they, they went from, you know, anti-immigrant to briefly br- being, being for comprehensive immigration reform that came with tough, you know, crackdowns. Republicans eventually um, had that blown up by the nascent, you know, the proto Trump movement, you know, the tea party that was bubbling at the time. And then they only really became pro-immigrant, as a kind of negative polarization against Trump. Like if, if, tr- like if Trump n- never decides to pull the trigger and run for president and, you know, th- and like they would be, the Democrats would have, you know, continued moving kind of right on immigration and kind of Republicans probably stay in there like weird, like chamber of commerce slash nativist, you know, contradictory uh, position. Um, but Democrats would have not never have been like the welcoming as welcoming to immigrants as they were during the Trump administration because it wasn't about being open to immigrants. It was about just owning Trump and, and showing that he was racist and immoral and that Democrats were not. And trying to harness some of that grassroots energy that was really being yeah. uh, coming into fruition with these huge protests and and. Right. This kind of mass movement and yeah, taking the energy of that and absorbing it and turning it into votes for the Democratic Party while not actually following through on any of the right. things that these that these movements want, which is a common theme. Right. And also then about. sanctioning the hell out of countries all over the hemisphere and, and helping to produce like massive like migration crises in Venezuela and Cuba and Haiti, um, like the Golden Triangle, like just doing absolutely everything you can to like make it worse and and drive people your way and then complaining about it 
Well, I'm sure as soon as they finalize this deal, Republicans will stop attacking Democrats yeah. on immigration and being soft. They'll stop on calling them open borders, border, so. uh, MS-13 supporters. And, and what stuff. they'll probably do is just not come and to a deal here. at all and say it was all Democrats' fault. Yeah. 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 But let's, as it relates to this issue, this issue, you ha- you talk about how AOC and members of the squad. <laughs> navigated the Trump years on immigration in your new book, The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution. Everyone should pick up a copy if they haven't yet. It's really, really great. I've, I've flown through it over the past couple of days. I'm going to finish it after we wrap up our conversation tonight. Really enjoy it. But you talk about how somebody who you have such great stories about Josh Gottheimer. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to get into some of them, but for this, always fun. He's just seems like a maniac. Uh, (laughs) Like kind of, I kind of like am fascinated by him. And then the rest of me just hates him. Uh, But he's just such an interesting character in, in, in Washington. But when they were, you know, trying to push back against some of these Trump immigration moves while you know aoc was looking to pelosi for for you know where the party was going gottheimer's demanding that this it it does it doesn't go far enough um so could you talk about this fracture in the democratic party how the squad navigated it and and just what you learned throughout this this reporting process that particular moment was so crazy and it it exemplified what you would see over and over and over again, that you'd have kind of different factions working things out. You'd have the Senate leadership, you'd have the House leadership, you know, Schumer and Senate over Pelosi over here in the House. You've got the Congressional Progressive Caucus run by Jayapal. And then within that, you've got the squad. And, And that's the kind of dynamic that the Congress is, you know, Democratic controlled Congress is trying to is trying to work through like what what are the things that the leadership can support that you can get enough progressives to support and and then how does the squad kind of play the politics there and then often just out of a thunderbolt from the sky would come Josh Gottheimer with just some like intervention and, and at the end of the day you would always get the squad lambasted as disloyal Democrats, just not good enough Democrats. And you're watching this unfold the whole time. You're like, A, I don't personally see that as a criticism, but let's say that you do. Like, B, this guy is constantly undermining the party writ large and the Democrat and the leadership specifically with no consequences ever. And so on the immigration one, basically the Senate uh, slapped together with Republican votes because they needed 60. A pretty crappy immigration bill to send to Trump after one of the, you know, there were routine panics around the human rights abuses going on at the border. And so after one of the panics, uh, you know, pic- pictures emerge like the conscience of the country is just shocked. And so Congress is going to take action and they're going to try to crack down on abuses by CPB, CPB and, and ICE and and also like insist on, you know, better treatment. And then they're going to and then ICE is like, well, and CPB are like, well, we need more money. If you know, we're going to feed them better, we're going to give them clean water. Like the conditions were just like utterly deplorable. Like Iana Presley went to like one of these things and like the the like they were using like the sink as a toilet because there were no toilets and like this and the sink wasn't even like turned on. Like she turned on another one. It's like just a brown, disgusting water. It's like just filthy mattresses for like, you know, one for five people, just like third world conditions that are just completely inhumane and intolerable. Uh, and so they're like, well, we need more money if we're, if we're not going to do that. And so the Senate slaps together a bill that basically, you know, has no reforms, doesn't make them do anything when it comes to improving the care of the people in their custody or or move fast move move them faster out of the system and just throws a bunch of money at them with kind of no strings attached. And Schumer, as he's as he tells Pramila Jayapal later, he's like, this is just to, this is just to get something through the Senate so that the House, which is doesn't have to deal with the filibuster or Republicans, 
we'll write something better and then we'll and then we'll use the pressure of the moment to just push it through the Senate and then and it'll get and that and then Trump will have to sign it because it's it's more money and he's under all this pressure from all these pictures and videos that are out there. And that's what Pelosi's going to do. And um, there's a fight between the squad and 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 the progressive caucus and Pelosi about how tough to make the House bill. That's when she's she gets frustrated with them because they vote no. And she's like, they're just four people. And they, she gets in a big fight with with a Maureen Dowd column and uh, there's all this drama erupts, but they're making the, but they're making the bill better. And then all of a sudden Gottheimer comes in and he's like, I have a handful of like right-wing Democrats. We insist that you just pass the Senate bill like by five o'clock tonight. And Pelosi just shocks everybody and is like, okay, I, my hand is forced. And Schumer like, is like apoplectic because he now looks like an idiot because it's his bill that gets moved through the house. And he's like, what, he's like, what on earth are you doing? And that's when he's, he's sets up a direct channel then with Jayapal that becomes useful, you know, over the, over the years, um, you know, down the, down the line. Um, he's like, what do you like? How did that happen? It's like, like Godheimer, like, but, but, and but why did, why did Pelosi cave to Godheimer? And some of it just ends up, a mystery, like no obvious answer. Um, other elements of it, you can see sometimes it's clear that Pelosi has like agrees with his agenda and is doing the thing where she's like reluctantly kind of forced to like to get the thing that she actually does want, but can blame Godheimer on. And that one, it's not even clear um, why she capitulated. But yeah, you watch this the whole time. You're like, how, how does, <laughs> how does he keep getting away with this? <laughs> I want to remind people, we've talked about it a bit on the show before, but Gottheimer is also uh, one of the figures who helped organize that Team Blue Pack, which was specifically created to oust Justice Democrats. And in a party um, who, with a leadership that was pretty clear on protecting incumbents, um, he never seemed to be subject to the same sort of criticisms or attacks right. that members of the squad would for supporting primary challengers against establishment or, or center-leaning uh, Democrats. He just seems yep. like someone who yeah, doesn't did, face the same sort of pressure <laughs> at all. And he did that unbreakable nine thing um, where I'm not sure if you're at that part of the book yet, but yet you, I'm sure you remember from the Build Back Better uh, fight. Yeah, where he yes. came up with these eight eight other Democrats who are like, we're the unbreakable nine and we're teaming up with no labels um, and the private equity goons behind them. And we're going to, you know, monkey around with Biden's build back better agenda. And it's like, this is his, this is Biden's agenda. Like he's not the signature thing. It's not Bernie's agenda. This is not AOC's agenda. This is Biden's build back better. Uh, yeah. So just wild, just wild. I mean, the, in retrospect, it's so amazing how Biden was kind of pitching himself as being the one. I'm gonna, I'm, I've been in the Senate for decades. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make deals with Republicans. I'm gonna bring everyone together. And the extent to which it was people in his own party right. that he just couldn't get on board with his basic agenda that he campaigned on. Um, yeah. It's pretty incredible. I don't know. So I'm maybe the more conspiratorial side of me thinks that like they never really intended to go that far with their agenda, but they wanted to kind of signal to the progressive base that they had all these big ideas and, oh, it turns out we can't do that stuff. You know, I do sometimes think it's a little bit of a planned obsolescence kind of kind of situation, but it really is amazing yeah. how much his own party sabotaged his entire agenda. At the same time, and to complicate it a bit, what what that Congress passed in 2021 and 2022 is wild. Like, yeah, you, you add everything together with the in, you know infrastructure bill at 700 American Rescue Plan at 1.9 trillion. Chips was another 350 billion, and then Inflation Reduction Act comes in at seven eight hundred billion. But it was written in an, an extremely clever way, in that there were there really aren't caps to the amount of credits that it can give out in, in certain fields, certain climate fields, so that, that they could wind up being you know, hundreds of billions more than were actually in the package. And those themselves are going to 
just leverage private capital that was waiting on the sidelines, trillions of private capital that were waiting on the sidelines that needed that kind of government push. So it kind of, it, it, it's, it's not as straight up as just a complete failure. Like there was, it's, it's a pretty, it, it was a, it's a pretty interesting time. That's, and it's hard to make heads or tails of it. You you begin the book uh, in part by talking about AOC's entry into Congress, right, getting elected, and immediately realizing she needs to navigate um, the U.S. Uh, and Israel's alliance. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how you know difficult that was for her when she joined or when she got elected, and then obviously the attacks that Ilhan Omar faced for her comments talking about apex lobbying and influence in washington and you know this these all these moments all occurred in 2018 and now i guess what's it's relevant again because we're seeing the same sort of attacks levied against a new crop of of members uh, who mm-hmm. could be in the squad i was just just before we got on i saw a story from politico tonight attacking summer lee for hmm. saying apex is racist and this this new scoop in Politico seems to go after her for saying something many people feel and many people see through who they endorse, who they back and who they attack. Yeah, she's been saying that out loud for a while. I'm so, but Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Old Facebook comments from her. Well, she said it on like CNN two days ago. but that's not a scoop right (laughs) right that's and that's that was actually trump's secret to bring it back to that man that he would just do everything out in the open whereas if he were saying the stuff that he said privately and being recorded and leak those recordings leaked to the press absolutely explosive revelations instead he would just say it like at a press conference or at a rally so yeah you got to pretend that you that you like uncovered something um let me go feed these cats i'll be right back they're 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 all over me because they're it's like an hour past their time to eat hold on a second Uh, i guess before before your cats demanded dinner um i guess what do you what do you think those conflicts the squad first encountered when they got elected and were in congress how do you think that's kind of informed how they're navigating this current moment I mean, they've had an enormous amount of training. Uh, as you noticed reading the book, when you go back through the history, it's incredible how much time in their tenure has been consumed by this fight over Israel-Palestine, which uh, obviously is an important issue, uh, more important today than, than at any point in, in decades, but not the thing that any of them ran on. Uh, it, and it really it came for them rather than them going for it because they were kind of new in the sense that they took a position that said Palestinians deserve equal rights, they deserve dignity, they deserve to be treated like human beings, and that was considered is to this day considered controversial, and it was considered th- a, a major threat to the kind of status quo in Washington. And I think that that comes from the just re, the the facts on the ground in Israel, and in the sense that they just don't lend themselves to a winning position in, in like the Democratic Party. Like the uh, an interesting parallel is like the marriage equality fight. Like Democrats were content for a long time to just avoid that issue. Like just, and if they needed to, they'd say well, they were for civil unions. That was like the liberal position. But then in 2004, Karl Rove like called the question and like, and he used it to great effect to like use like homophobia to like drive out like an evangelical voter in 2004. But what that also did is it forced the Democratic Party to take a position on the question of marriage equality. And it didn't happen overnight. But a few years later, like you know, five, six years later, if you force the Democratic Party to look squarely in the face of a civil rights issue, like eventually they're going to the voters, there are going to wind up on the right side of it and the politicians are going to be forced to follow. And I think the 
interview that uh, Jamal Bowman did on, I think, MSNBC about about uh, walking through Hebron and being stopped at a checkpoint, um, and and seeing with his own eyes, like how uh, oppressive and like dystopian the situation was, it was really revealing because you then had Richie Torres uh, go public and say, "You're lying." Yeah, you know this is outrageous, and there's I think no Richie, checkpoints. There's no, yeah, this is there's no roads that like are divided that only Jews can go down. Um, that you know, it, like that's that's impossible. Um, and when I, really I went think, on my sanctioned trip there, I didn't see any of this right, stuff. I so there, I know for sure that it's not there. I didn't see Thank that you. on my APAC trip, and yeah. and I, I'm sure that he was being genuine. Like he did not. Yeah. He thought that Jamal Bowman was making that up. Because he's a decent human being, like underneath it all, and he doesn't, and he's just been lied to, and so has so much of the American public just been lied to about what the situation is. And so then, when you tell people like what the actual situation is, you sound crazy. Like sometimes you sound anti-Semitic. Like now, what? That, that's not possible. And an exit where only a license plate for a registered Jewish Israeli can go down. Like no. That's crazy. Like you're nuts. Uh, but and so you have to then constrain the conversation. Like you can't allow even a crack to get through where there's an open dialogue about what we're supporting in Israel. Because once even like members of Congress seem to like not even know, like Richie Torres, like and once people know, like once people see. Or, or hear from people who have seen what's going on there, eventually it's going to crack under the, the weight of its own, you know, horrifying reality. And so I think that that's why those, the squad members coming in 2018 were such a threat and had to be met with like such a ferocious pushback, including, you know, the propping up of Democratic Majority for Israel super PAC, like the same month that they were sworn in specifically to counter them. Yeah. And so it's, it's amazing looking back on 2018 and uh, the ways that, you know, Ilhan Omar was attacked for just making this totally non-controversial observation about the fact that the Israel lobby throws around money in Washington and has influence as a result of that, like not really something that should really be controversial, but because it's Washington, it is. And took and a lot she, of criticism. And she realized that. it. And that was an interesting moment because she heard from a lot of like Jewish friends of hers who she knew were talking to her in good faith, who were like, look, the, the trope that you're that 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 feeds into is is so powerful that we get what you're saying, but you still have to be just careful to not be kind of feeding into people who are genuinely anti-Semitic. And she was actually affected by that. She's like, she's like, I get I she's like, I didn't get it before, I get it now. Um but at the same time, she's like, I just don't understand why we can talk about the NRA. And that, then yeah. she got in trouble later. We can talk you still about need the to NRA. be able to have that conversation. We can sure. talk about big oil, but we can't talk about the way that Israel, you know, demands that you be loyal to Israel. And then again, because she's not familiar with these these tropes, um, they're like, oh, now that's the dual loyalty, dual loyalty trope. And so then she's caught again, and then there, and she's censured. Caught up, she's caught up in a scandal again, and then she gets censured again, or or gets a censuring scandal where God, where Gottheimer is leading the charge, saying we need to censure, <laughs> censure her. Yeah. But when Donald Trump she's is like, just I'm like, not saying I'm not saying a do loyal to try. I just mean like there are a million countries around the world. Like why is this one the one that we have to like pledge allegiance? Oh, oh, I can't say allegiance. Like she's like, you know, she, <laughs> she's trying to use just normal language that she would use with any other special interest group. And and it's running up against all of these guardrails. But then it's incredible because then when Donald Trump says openly, like these Jewish people that don't support Israel, they're not very loyal, not very right, loyal, and, and no and, one cares. It's like whatever. And, no, and then and actually. he'll be like, he'll be like, the Jews, they they run Congress. So how how dare you challenge them? I gave them Jerusalem. It's like yeah. he's he's like so openly anti-Semitic, but he's he thinks he's like pro-Semitic, I guess philo-Semitic or something, so that like. It's okay for, for him to like yeah. engage in tropes because he's like, no, these are good things. It's cool that you 
uh, our puppet master of Congress. It's like, no, that's anti-Semitism. You're still, yeah. you're still an anti-Semite. Well, it's kind of the logical extension of this idea that it, as long as you support Israel, that that's that means that you support Jewish people, right. and if you don't, then you don't. Um, right. But Which I think the it's ADL interesting. Just confirmed with that exactly. Elon Musk. Yeah, and the Demo- and like the all of U.S. Con- of the U.S. Congress is passing like legislation explicitly that, right. that states that, which is incredibly yeah. fucked up in and of itself as well. But I do think like, despite all these kinds of accusations and the, you realize this has been the strategy for a long time is about throwing these accusations around for anyone that has any kind of criticism about Israel. Like when we talk about 2018, that was when the great March of return was going on, but there was a whole lot of rampant criminality that was, that was mm-hmm. there that should have been criticized and, and was, but it always gets met with these accusations of anti-Semitism or whatever. But what I find interesting right now, though, is that despite the fact that the, mostly the Democratic Party with a few outliers have been mostly in lockstep with Biden on this, now even like the National Security Caucus, he's kind of losing them on his position. Now they're starting to criticize Biden for uh, not <laughs> calling for a ceasefire. That's, that is one really incredible development that I, I was really surprised by today where you have like like uh, Spanberger, like the CIA caucus yep. is basically being like, okay, now it's enough. Now we need to, we need to dial this back a little bit. That really, it there, shows how extreme the Biden administration's position on this is. It really does. There have been some signs that there's this, that there is this rumbling. Um, Alex Burns, no, what's his name? Burns, the CIA director has been playing a, like, it seems like much more kind of influential diplomatic role than the state department, which is just kind of, uh, sadly cheerleading like yeah we're telling them not to do all this stuff but you know you know how you know you know how they are you know how they do they, what are you gonna do whereas burns has been really it does seem like behind the scenes um taking a different tack Mossad, bizarrely seems to be like for just from the kind of the some of the reporting that has leaked out Mossad seems pretty uh skeptical about this strategy uh, and so the fact that you had Jason Crow, Spanberger, Houlihan, uh, Slotkin, like all of these like State Department, CIA linked um, members of Congress coming out and calling for a change in strategy suggests that there is a lot of skepticism about it because the strategy is just revenge and blood and like ethnic cleansing and like we're going to settle got the Gaza Strip. Like that's that that is that is the strategy, um, and and they're going to use like disease and starvation to do it. Like that that just seems clearly like the, the game plan. Plus, uh, obviously, bullets and bombs and normal kind of deep state security, whatever establishment, whatever you call them, like Mossad, CIA types. You're like, yeah, and it's not. That's not actually a strategy. Where I don't. Where does that go? Yeah. Uh, there. Also in the book, you talk about how the squad navigated the 2020 primary, and not to get into it too much. Um, I, I'm wondering if there was something that didn't make it that you thought was was also interesting. I thought I thought that whole like section was grim to relive um but you know it was full of like kind of especially for aoc because ilhan and talib were like pretty early on board with 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 bernie but you seem to have a close relationship in constant conversation with aoc could you tell us about how like she navigated that moment because i think a lot of people were trying to get her to endorse warren the uh, mm-hmm. alleged Bernie comments about a woman not being able to beat Trump seem to be a factor in how they tried to sway her. Um, is there, I guess, is there something that you like took away from your conversations with her that didn't, that didn't make it that might be interesting. Well, part of it was, and I, th- I think this sort of made it, but like, or the, the sense made it that like, you know, she was, she's sometimes nervous about what her own power is. Like she, like there are times that she was worried that an endorsement would hurt him um, because she was under this 24 seven Fox news, um, you know, relentless campaign, which is then kind of fueled by the Godheimer and like sent, you know, the right center, right wing in the democratic party making that 
it's hard for her to tell like how effectively are they making her toxic to like the actual democratic primary electorate. And so she doesn't want to do anything that's going to like undermine Sanders. And then it's also Sanders is like stumbling, you know, for the first part of his, his campaign, uh, just hanging out at like 15% or whatever for a very long time. Um, and she, you know, she's, she likes Warren. Um, Warren's a great, you know, Warren's a very good politician. Like Warren, you know, would, you know, they stayed in touch. Like they, they obviously, you know, pretty much see eye to eye on, you know, most political issues. And so, yeah, at, at one point, and that was one of the things that she insisted. I don't know if that made it in the book or not that like, all right, I'm in, but one of the conditions that I'm in on is that we're, this is not going to be an anti-Warren campaign, like anti-Biden. Like this is, this isn't, this isn't, this is anybody but Joe kind of campaign. Um, and they're like, okay, that's good. You know, that, that works. Um, and that whole, um, that whole moment I think is, is kind of, like you said, tough to relive because of this split that you had on the progressive side of the democratic party that turns super toxic and then allows, you know, Biden to kind of move through the, if, if there's any uh, upside in it, you can imagine what a presidency for either, either Warren or Bernie would be like with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema as the like, deciding votes like I, you know biden deserves lots of criticism for you know what he did and didn't get done but i think mansion and cinema were more much more willing to vote for a democratic agenda that had biden's brand on it than they would have been with uh bernie's brand on it like i think the, i think mansion would just tank bernie out of the gate and and like by the time uh, Afghanistan withdrawal comes around, they'd be like the CIA'd be like putting a bag over his head, warming <laughs> like, up the heart attack gun. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like you're gonna. I mean, it would have been a glorious uh, uh, rebellion. Um, but man, you you can only imagine what that. It would have been. It would have been great to cover. It would have been. It, it would be a time, and it would and it would really you know call a lot of questions and put things on the floor, but. It's hard to imagine um, him getting anything done at all. I think for me, the the interesting subplot of that would be and how would Bernie not, be handling this? By the way, Ooh. I yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems I mean, like okay. it wouldn't be that different from what from what yeah. we're seeing, frankly, um, which is a kind of a sobering thought. I guess when it comes to kind of passing a more progressive economic agenda, I think the the interesting thing for me is the question, and this goes with like anyone that's kind of trying to. Uh, run a kind of progressive campaign or lead a progressive government when you're facing all this in any kind of Western liberal democracy. It's a lesson that I think would be interesting. But, you know, if you have someone like Manchin uh, blocking your agenda, rather than going the Biden route and like trying to play nice with the guy the whole time, like I don't think Biden ever even said Manchin's name in his speech. I think Bernie wrote an op-ed about him one time and it caused this big controversy. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen, you know, a president, whether it was President Sanders or whoever, it would have been good to see Biden do this as well. Actually, like, call out the people in his own party that are blocking his own agenda. You would think that that would be a source of, mm -hmm. like, frustration or outrage or whatever, and he could make that case, like, go on TV and say, this is the guy that's blocking my agenda. What do you, Joe, what are you doing, you know? That, I think, it would yeah. be an interesting way. That doesn't mean that I think that that would mean that Manchin would just automatically get on board, but it's when your constituents see that you're actively fighting to pass this legislation rather than just being like, ah, well, you know, they well, said no, so I guess we can't do it. I think that's kind of the interesting aspect of that for me. Would have been interesting to see. That's for sure. Um, I, I, we have a decent global readership, um, at the intercept and, uh, I would get messages sporadically from people overseas who are like, can you explain again why this one guy from this random state, <laughs> can block the president of the United States agenda. <laughs> yeah. It's like if some, if some MP in our parliament tried to do that, they'd be thrown out of the party like immediately. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Well, they, there actually is no mechanism to throw Joe Manchin out of the party. I mean, you can make well, what him. What would like, what FDR or like LBJ doing with that? It was like, let's, <laughs> let's talk about your son's uh, business dealings, Joe. Like let's get that's down and one, dirty with this. Like let's really, 
That's yeah. the one way you can do it. You black you can blackmail them with the <laughs> with prosecution. Yes, but he, but this even FDR in charge of these things. I guess like F, FDR. You know he ran a, he ran primary campaigns against all of these like southern goons who were um, up against his New Deal, and he campaigned for them all over the South um, and got w- rinsed everywhere. Like it's it's just it's just a nightmare because they were like, yeah, I'm standing up against. Um, actually like they, they were so racist. They'd be like, yeah, I'm standing up against like FDR and, and the blacks and the Jews. And it's like, wow, this is, this is your coalition. This is, this is like insane. Um, and, but yeah. he, he tried to take them out and, and failed like they're cause they had their racist white supremacist Southern base that was just going to keep throwing them in there. So yeah, our system that allows, you know, that has, senators elected from these states um just like makes it tough well ryan uh we're appreciative uh, as always of you joining us and for your time and your commentary the squad aoc and the hope of a political revolution is available now people should go pick it up i'm i'm really enjoying uh listening to it and if you get the audiobook ryan narrates it which is that's so right. Wild. You like Ryan's smooth voice. What, what speed do you put me on? Uh, 1.7. Excellent. Yeah. Which is, I guess you talking at a normal speed. <laughs> <laughs> I know they, they make you, they, they make you read really slowly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I just like, I start an audio book and it's like, this is 14 hours. Like, no, it's not. Let's, no, it's not. <laughs> let's let's get hours. this going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan, um, I guess if you want to give a pitch, another pitch for the book or, or where people know that's it, check it out, get the, get, get the hardcover. Um, yes. And, uh, but yes, get the audio book too. And, uh, Hey, not too late for, uh, the holiday season, stick it under somebody's uh, tree or in their stocking. There we go. The last minute ideas. Your MAGA uncle, uh, this holiday season. They would love it. They, they, everybody would love it. The grant, your grandma, (laughs) grandpa, your, your socialist, niece like all of them Ryan thank you so much for joining us you got it thanks Ryan talk to you guys later